Hey guys, thanks. You can be seated. Thanks, Musos. Great job as always from the Musos. It's good to be here. It's good to be in an air-conditioned building. Escape the humidity outside about 300%. And have a good morning this morning. If you have your Bible or if you have a device uh, with a Bible on it, Acts 12, if you want to go there. We've got a really lengthy portion of Scripture. So uh, if you prefer to read in front of you, then Acts 12 is the place for you to go. So there's a story told about an outback town which uh, is, was dry. It had no, no pubs, uh, no bottle shops. And so a businessman saw an opportunity in the town and said, I'm going to monopolize the alcohol industry and build himself a pub. The local church was very, very upset about this, you know, this incredible immorality coming to town. And so what they did is they all got together and they had an all-night prayer meeting. They prayed, they said all the right things, we want this thing out of town. A few days later, a massive storm comes through the town and lightning strikes the pub and it burns to the ground. The pub owner is very upset about this. He hires a lawyer, goes to court and he sues the church for burning his pub down. The church hired their own lawyer to defend the fact that they didn't burn the pub down. The judge, as he reviews the case in the, in the opening uh, you know, arguments, says, well, I'm not sure how this is going to turn out, but one thing's very clear. One of these parties believes in the power of prayer, and it's not the church. <laughs> Sometimes we can say things and not really believe them. And as a church, as individuals... We can ask God for things, we can say this stuff, we can pray, and we don't really believe it. And this morning, my aim is not necessarily focusing in on prayer, but the aim this morning is to get you to believe the impossible. And by the end of this morning, I really do hope that everyone here would have a little bit more faith than perhaps you do now. Acts 12, 1 to 17. Like I said, lengthy portion, so please bear with me, but it's all important. Starting in verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of the unleavened bread. So when he arrested him, he put him, put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to him uh, offered to God for him by the church. When Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. So he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and followed me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where they were all gathered together praying. 
As Peter knocked on the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she didn't open the gate, but she ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you're beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so, so they said, it's his angel. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Uh, But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. He said, go and tell these things to James and the brethren. And he went and departed to another place. I want to talk about this present reality. Modern Western Christianity is so far removed from where we see this account held in first century Jerusalem. Today we, in, in Australia anyway, have an incredible freedom to gather here together. No one's concerned about any police coming in or any dangers here this morning. We're allowed to vocalise our opinion and have uh, opinion contrary to what is popular or contrary to uh, what other people say and that's okay. We can do those things. But in first century Jerusalem, where the church was, it was a very, very dangerous thing to call yourself a Christian. And both authorities of the day were against Christianity. You had the Romans who occupied Jerusalem. And these people didn't like Christianity because Christianity said that Jesus is God, whereas the Romans believed that Caesar was God. And they didn't like anyone worshipping someone who wasn't Caesar. And so the Christians would openly declare that they worshipped Jesus as God. So they were offside with the Romans. They were offside with the Jewish leaders, the ones who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, who rejected the claims of Christ and who wanted to maintain the way things had always been. And so they were against the Christian church as well. And when the church started, it started with great excitement amidst all of that opposition and uh, you know, contrary opinion coming toward them. It started off with great hopes, great excitement. In Acts chapter 2, Peter gets up, preaches what is not a very long sermon, and 3,000 people make a decision for Jesus. And I'm sure Peter thought, this is so easy. How great is this? This is just going to keep happening and continuing and the momentum will keep going. And they enjoyed that for a while, but it didn't really take all that long. You see in Acts chapter 6 and 7, the account of a guy named Stephen who is killed for his faith by the Jewish leaders. And you see here in Acts 12 at the very opening there that James is killed. Now, James isn't the guy that wrote the book of James. That's the half-brother of Jesus. This James was one of the original 12 disciples. He was the brother of John. And so he had been with them since the very start. He had seen everything that Jesus had done. He had been a great friends and family with this community. And now he's killed. And Herod sees that the Jews are really excited that James is killed. And so he arrests Peter. And so now Peter's being held in prison and things are looking bad. And Luke goes into great detail about what's happened here. Luke uh, writes the book of Acts. He also surprisingly wrote the book of Luke. And so he 
uh, traveled with the apostles. He was very close with them. He was very close with Peter, very close with Paul. And so he goes into detail about the situation. When you read that uh, text there, you see that the guards have arrested him, that there are four squads of soldiers assigned to him. That's about 16 soldiers that are looking after Peter. He is chained all the time between two soldiers with chains. Even, it says, even while he's sleeping, he has to sleep between two guards who are chained to him. Talks about the gates that are there, that, uh, the, the, all the outposts that are there where people are there. And so he's going into great detail here to explain to us and make us see very, very clearly that Peter's in an impossible situation. That there is absolutely no human way that you can get him out. You can't extract him, send in the SWAT team, get him out. This is not happening. He's in there and chances are he's going to die. And that's the reality that the church is facing. And this morning I wonder if you've come and, you know, you look great this morning, you can put on a smile this morning, but I wonder if somewhere inside there's an impossible circumstance that you have. And you can detail that and outline that and say, it is, uh, it is this in my marriage that is causing this. My child is away from God and I know what they're involved in and I know the life they're living and I can't see any way out for them. The sickness is so bad that I just don't see it getting better. The financial problems are so bad that there's thousands upon thousands upon thousands uh, and I'm so far in debt that uh, I can't get my head above water or whatever the situation might be for you. And you're, you can outline this and you can detail this and say, I'm an impossible situation. I cannot see any way out. And I tell you the good news of that is that you're in the best place for a miracle. When you're in an impossible situation, that's the best place for a miracle. People that have no problems and no needs, and no, they don't get miracles. So they don't need them. But when you can say, I can't fix this, I can't solve this, I can't see a light at the end of the tunnel, then you're in a perfect place for a miracle. But in order to get to there, we have to deal with the doubt. This account makes me laugh when I read it. We, we can read it quite straight and we don't often see the humor in it but it's, it's an incredibly humorous illustration of the doubt that we have in our lives so Peter gets arrested they hear about this and the church does what the church does best is they arrange a prayer meeting because that's what churches do if there's a problem let's arrange a prayer meeting let's text everyone tell them to pray and there's nothing wrong with that that's great Someone once said that it was the angel that fetched Peter from the prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. And so it is good to get together and have a prayer meeting. It is good to say all the right things. And Christians are so good at doing things that look spiritual. They're so good at saying things that sound spiritual. Can you say amen? <laughs> Someone got the irony. And there they were, saying all the right things. And I'm sure, as, as they're praying, they don't really believe Peter's getting out. 
but they're saying words like they do. And they're probably quoting scripture. God, you can do all things. You are our salvation. You make a way where there is no way. We believe you this morning. They're probably even quoting scripture that hasn't even been written yet. We know that all things work for good for those that are called. And there they are and they're saying all these great things. Exactly what you want to say in those circumstances. While that's all going on and they're all having their their powerful prayer moment. Peter is being taken out of prison by the angel. Angel comes to him in the middle of the night, the chains fall off him. And isn't that good that sometimes you don't have to do anything that God can just take the chains off you? Chains just fall off him. Angel doesn't touch him. He doesn't do it. It just happens. He's escorted out of, out of the jail, taken past all the guards. He walks straight out. He thinks he's having a vision because just a, cha- a couple of chapters earlier, he has a vision. And so he thinks this is just what's happening again. But then he wakes up, realizes where he is. He's now out of jail. He runs to the house where he knows they're going to be. He knocks on the door. A young girl named Rhoda comes, hears his voice, doesn't open the door because she's so surprised because she's been hearing what they're praying. And she says, wow, God answered their prayer already. So she should have just opened the door and let him in, but she doesn't. She turns and runs into the room where they're praying. And they're there, they're there, remember? They're saying, God, release him from prison right now. Get him out. And then Rhoda comes in. Hey, guys, Peter's at the door. And you would think that they'd say, wow, let him in. Done. Good work, guys. (laughs) But they don't. They say to her, you're out of your mind. Was that grape juice you were drinking before, Rhoda? Because, you know, you're a bit... That can't be true. Peter can't be at the door. He's in a prison. He's chained. He's surrounded by guards. Let us keep praying for him to get released from prison. Go away. And so they keep praying, God, release Peter from prison. Get him out right now. We believe that you can do anything. And she says, no, no, guys, he's really at the front door. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, it's his angel, Rhoda. You know, because they want to sound spiritual. They want to dismiss her and say, okay, yeah, pat her on the head. It's his angel. All right, let us keep praying. And they keep praying, God, release Peter from prison. And and Peter's at the, guys, come on. And Peter, you've got to feel for him because he's just been released from prison. He's out in the middle of the road. He's knocking on the door. If soldiers find him, he's dead. And soldiers, as soon as they realize he's gone, they're looking for him because what happened in those days is if, you, uh, if a prisoner escaped on your watch, then you took their punishment. And so these 16 soldiers knew they were going to be killed if Peter uh, disappears. And so they're all out looking for him. He's knocking on the door. Eventually, they open the door and they're astonished because they never believed that they were going to see Peter again. They were astonished. Had they actually believed in what they were praying, they might have been amazed. They may have been in awe. They, they certainly would have been thankful. But they were astonished because they had no understanding, they had no intention that Peter was ever going to get out. 
They simply didn't believe it. They were saying the right words, but they didn't believe it. And you can understand why they had doubt, you know, like James just just been killed. The authorities are cracking down on the church. Peter's arrest would have actually brought back memories. If you look at the time of where this happened, it says that this is at the time of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and the Passover. So this is actually the one-year anniversary of Jesus being killed. And remember, one, a year ago, they saw Jesus arrested, taken away, and killed. And in their minds, they're probably thinking, man, it's happening again. Next time we see Peter, we're going to watch him die. And you can understand that their disappointment has led to doubt. And now they're going through the motions, they're doing what they know they should do, even though they don't really believe it. But isn't that an incredible illustration of the grace of God? That God moved in spite of their unbelief. That they had absolutely no faith that Peter was coming out, yet God took him out. And often we can think, and I'm, I'm, I'm not getting my answer because I don't have enough faith. God can move regardless of your faith. And often he does. And that can be because it's simply God's will. It can be because he's trying to show you something. And I'm sure that from this moment on, the disciples had an incredible faith that God could do anything. And doubt is not always a dirty word. It can actually help bring conviction upon your life. It can help uh, you to drive you to seek out truth. I have doubted everything I believe over the years of, of being a Christian. Everything. Is the Bible really true? I don't know. Did Jesus really die on the cross? Was he born of a virgin? And in doubting that, it's made me go to the Scripture and find out the answers and find out the truth for my life. And so doubt can be good if it drives you to God. But if you live in doubt constantly, then it's not going to help you. So four quick ways to overcome doubt. One is that you have to get close to God. There is a man in the Bible, one of the disciples, called Thomas. Thomas gets a bad rap because we just call him Doubting Thomas. Uh, you know, and so even though earlier on in the book of John, you find him saying, we're going we're gonna to go all the way with you, Jesus. We're going to stay with you to the very end. And he's actually quite a faithful guy, um, but he, he's forever known as Doubting Thomas. But anyway, in verse, 20, in, in verse 25 of John 20, Thomas says this, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails uh, and put my hand into his side, sorry, I will not believe. And again, you can understand he is full of doubt. That Jesus, he hears Jesus is risen from the dead, but that can't be true. That people are saying they've seen him, but maybe they just want to see him. And in his mind, he's like, I just cannot come to an understanding that that can possibly be the reality. And, uh, and he's talking to the disciples, he's saying, I just, unless I see it, unless I touch it. And a couple of verses later, Jesus comes to him, and what you see is Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus doesn't say, are you crazy? How can you not believe? How can you have such little faith, Thomas? Thomas. 
Don't you remember all the things I said to you? Other people believe. Why can't you? What's wrong with you? He doesn't do that at all. In verse 27, he says, reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here. Put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. He completely understands his doubt. Completely understands it. And says, here, if you need proof, here's proof. And what you need to do is allow your doubt to push you toward Jesus. Don't use it as an excuse to pull away from Jesus. And so often we do that. We use our doubt as an excuse to pull away from Jesus rather than pushing toward. We have the story of John the Baptist who uh, had announced Jesus coming uh, and uh, he finds himself in jail as well and he's about to be executed. And in his mind, this isn't how the story ends. And so he's full of doubt and he's unsure. Is this really the way things are meant to play out? And so he gets his disciples to go to Jesus and say, are you really the one? Are you really the one? Because if you were the one, my life wouldn't be like this. I wouldn't be about to be killed. I wouldn't be in jail. This isn't how it was meant to go. Are you the one? And he could have used that doubt to say, I'm never talking to that guy again because this isn't the plan. But he reached out to Jesus and he was able to end his life knowing that Jesus was the one because Jesus was able to get word back to him. We need to get close to God. Secondly, you can put him to the test. God is not afraid of your doubt. He's not scared of it, nor is he surprised by it. And... It's okay for you to ask him and be open about this. There's the story of Gideon who uh, gets selected by God to lead an army. And he says, but God, that can't be true because I am the least in my family and our family is the least in Israel. You have picked the wrong guy. You need to get the best of the best, not the least of the least. And God says, no, 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 you are the guy. And he's like, well, I don't believe you, so I need you to do something. And he gets a a fleece, he puts that out uh, outside at night, and he says, in the morning, if I'm the one that you want, the fleece will be dry, the ground will be wet. Wakes up in the morning, the fleece is dry, the ground is wet. And he's like, nah, that's just coincidence. And so uh, he says, okay, um, now if I'm really the one, because now it's getting real for him and he's getting a bit nervous by this, he's like, if I'm really the one, the fleece will be wet and the ground will be dry. Can't do that. And so then he does this, puts the fleece out, and in the morning, goes out, touches the fleece, and is wet. God's not scared by your doubt. Malachi 3.10, now try me in this, says the Lord of hosts. He says, you, 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 want, you want to try it? You want to test me out? That's fine. Test me out. And this is in relation to giving, and uh, you know, this scripture is often used uh, as an example that if you feel a bit nervous to give, then, then just try and see what God can do. Because God knows the outcome. So he's not hesitant to say, test me, because he knows exactly what's going to happen if you test him. And you can ask God some tough questions. In fact, just during this week, Belinda and I were trying to figure out some decisions of, are we going to do this? Are we going to do that? And we weren't really sure of which direction to go. And Belinda quite wisely said, well, I'm going to pray Uh, and said, God, just show us what you want us to do. 
went to bed the next morning. She wakes me up because she's got an email saying, look, this is the circumstance. And so clearly this is what God wants us to do. Like the next morning. Because God's not scared by your doubt. And he's happy to show himself to you. Thirdly, you need faith-filled leaders and friends. You need to get around people that are going to help you, support you, and encourage you. That when you have doubt, when you're facing these situations and you're just not quite sure how this is going to play out, then people around you can say, you know what, God can do anything. I've seen, I know someone that's been in that circumstance. I've been in that circumstance. This is what happened. God can help you. You need to find a life group and go to life group and ask some really hard questions and say, I've got all these doubts. Can you help me? And allow the faith and the testimonies of others to encourage you. And finally, you need to keep insisting when others are doubting. I love Rhoda in this story. Here's this young servant girl. And she could easily be intimidated by these great leaders that are all gathered together, the leaders of the church. And the things that they know and the things that they've seen and the things that they say. Yet she goes in there and says, Peter's at the door. And even when they try and shut her down, she's like, no, 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 Peter's really at the door. She doesn't give in to that and say, oh, okay. Obviously he's not, I'm, I must be dreaming. She continues to insist even when they doubt. And you need to continue to insist when other people around you are doubting. You need to continue to say, God can do this. God can move. God will have his will. And continue to press in. And we need to have a theology for the impossible. You know, this church should be a church of the impossible. That when people talk about us as a church, they'll say, man, that, that's a place where the impossible happens. I've seen people that have gone into that church and I know what they're like and how they live and everything that's going on in their circumstance and I look at them now and it's impossible what's happened to their lives. I see the impact that that church has on the community and the faith that they have for this community and the way they help this community, and it's impossible that they do that. I've seen the way this church love each other and the way they help each other and care about each other and they're there for each other, and that's impossible. This church should be a place of the impossible, and it's impossible because we serve a God of the impossible. We serve a God who is able to do all things and does the impossible really, really well. He parts the Red Sea to allow some three million people to walk through the Red Sea with giant walls of water on each side and they walk on completely dry land. As they are out in the desert and they have nothing to eat, he uh, feeds them with this bread that just rains out of the sky and it's just there for them in the morning. He allows a woman who has one jar of oil and that's all she's got. He allows this jar of oil to continue to flow and flow and flow. He raises people from the dead. He heals incurable diseases. He puts a, a coin into a fish's mouth to pay the temple tax just because he can. And now the impossible's just, he's having fun with the impossible. Because we serve a God of the impossible. 
And we limit him to our circumstances and to our mindsets. But Jesus, in Matthew 19, 26, he looks at them and he says, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. When you can't figure it out, God's already done it. When you're confused, God has incredible clarity. And you need to understand what God has done before. The disciples should have had no doubt whatsoever that Peter was getting out of prison. Not just on a level that God can do anything, but because it had happened before. Acts chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, the high priest rose up and those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, they were filled with indignation. They laid their hands on the apostles, they put them in the common prison, but at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people the words of life. See, they allowed their circumstances to dictate their theology because even though it had happened before, they excused it. An, An angel had delivered them from prison before, but it was a common prison. It wasn't the king's prison. It was the Sadducees' guards. It wasn't the king's guards. But if God's done it before, he can do it again. Regardless of the circumstances, uh, I was telling someone recently, um, many, many years ago when we were first married and we had zero money, uh, we had a bill come in, which we couldn't pay. It wasn't much. It was about $150. But we just didn't have it. And so we uh, prayed and Belinda said, we're going to pray and we're just going to believe God and and we're going to see this happen. And I come home from work one day, open my letterbox. There is an unmarked envelope. I open the envelope. There's $150 in there. Uh, I go inside and I say to Belinda, who, who dropped off the mail today? Paid the bill. Years later, many, many, many years later, we're in a situation where we needed about $3,000. And so I remember the $150 in the, in the letterbox, but that's $150 and, that, and that's pretty easy. Someone can do that. And I'd actually given up hope. And then after a church service one morning, someone came up to me with an unmarked envelope, a much wider one, handed it to me as $3,000. Because if God's done it before on a small scale, that doesn't stop him from doing it again on a larger scale. God's done it before, he can do it again. And if God's done it for someone else, he can do it for you. Not that long ago, someone in this church actually had uh, an envelope put in the offering with their name on it, and it it was the exact amount of money they needed to repair their washing machine, which had just broken down a couple of days ago. And this is why we give you praise reports every, uh, every week. This is why we tell you about the good things that God has done, because if He's done it before, He can do it again. And if He's done it for someone else, He can do it for you. And what we need to do is stop focusing on the what and start focusing on the who. Stop focusing on the problem and focus on the one who is able to bring the solution. Matthew 17, 20, Jesus says, If you have faith as a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And what we tend to do is we tend to look at that mountain and try and summon some faith inside of us to make it move. It's not you that's going to make the mountain move. It's not you that's going to fix the problem. And what Jesus is saying is, don't you try and move the mountain. Have faith that I can move the mountain. 
And what we need to understand is that the impossible doesn't happen uh, at at the end of it. The impossible didn't happen when Peter knocked on the door. The impossible happened when they got God involved and he was able to begin to move in the circumstance and send the angel. The impossible is not going to happen when your child is clean from drugs. The impossible is going to happen when you begin to pray and God begins to move on your child and show them that they need to repent and that they need to get clean. The impossible isn't going to happen when you're back happily married and everything's fine. It's going to happen when you and your wife, regardless of how you feel about each other right now, get in a room and say, we're going to pray and we're going to believe God and we're going to start living right. The impossible is going to happen not when all the debts are paid and you've got a a clear bank balance. It's going to be right now in the midst of the debt that you're in that you just say, I'm going to do things right and I'm going to get God involved in this. Stop looking at your mountain and start looking to Jesus. And the impossible will become possible because we serve a God of the impossible. We serve a God who can do anything. Don't limit him to your circumstances. Don't say, "Ah, I'm chained, I can't do it. Believe that God can do anything. Let's give him praise. Let's thank him. Yes, hallelujah. Amen. We want to pray. Can we have every head bowed, every eye closed this morning? You're here this morning and you're 